read with you two brief passages of Scripture as we prepare together to, um, to look at the truth of God's Word as it's summarized in the Belgic Confession. Starting with Isaiah 52, verses 7 through 12. Now we just uh, read this as uh, part of our preparation for looking into Isaiah 53, and that uh, reminded me of how this section of the prophet's writing calls God's people to delight in being part of the body, part of Israel, part of the people whom God has set apart for Himself. Starting in verse 7, the prophet proclaims, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go out in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Now, Turning then to Ephesians chapter 4. Um, Ephesians is a book in two parts. The first part talks about who we are in Christ, right? The second part, how do we live as those who are in Christ? And that starts in chapter 4. He's told this church, and this congregation had some inherent divisions. A large portion of the congregation had grown up Jewish, had turned to Christ in the midst of that. Others had been Gentiles and came uniquely to Christ. And... Um, that division really made its mark in the church. In chapter 2, he sought to remind them, you're no longer separate, right? You've been brought together, you've been drawn near, and you are together being built up into a dwelling place of God by the Holy Spirit. And now in chapter 4, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner, Worthy of the calling to with which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness. With patience. Bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. In the light of that calling to pursue the unity of the church, we read Article 28 from our Belgic Confession. We believe, since this holy congregation is an assembly of those who are saved, and outside of it there is no salvation, that no person of whatever state, whatsoever state or condition he may be ought to withdraw from it, content to be by himself but that all men are in duty bound to join and unite themselves with it, 
maintaining the unity of the church, submitting themselves to the doctrine and discipline thereof, bowing their necks under the yoke of Jesus Christ, and as mutual members of the same body serving to the edification of the brethren according to the talents God has given them. And that this may be the more effectually observed, that it is the duty of all believers, according to the word of God, to separate themselves from all those who do not belong to the church and to join themselves to this congregation wheresoever God has established it. Even though the magistrates and edicts of princes were against it, yea, though they should suffer death or any other corporal punishment. Therefore, all those who separate themselves from the same or do not join themselves to it act contrary to the ordinance of God. Amen. Beloved disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, I mentioned this morning the book of Judges. It recounts a very sad time in the history of God's people. Joshua and his generation, they had seen so much of God's power out in the wilderness. And they had seen the consequence of rebelling against God as an entire generation wandered in the wilderness until they all died because they refused to receive God's promises by a true and living faith. So Joshua and his generation, they were, they were confident not only that God's promises are true, but that disbelieving those promises is fatal. And so they entered the land and they took it, not by their power, not by their strategy, but by the power of God working through them. But then another generation arose that took for granted the relationship they had been given with God, the promises of God that had been entrusted to them. And the book of Judges relates this sad story that enacted itself over and over and over in the life of God's people. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Chapter 4. And the Lord sold them into the hand of, and then a foreign king is named. They did evil. They turned away from the Lord. And so God sold them into the hand of their enemy that they might learn the cost of disobedience, the cost of refusing to believe the Lord, the cost of rebellion, the cost of turning away from His people. And only when they had been brought low by their enemies and by the consequence of their sin and called out humbly for deliverance, only then did He raise up a deliverer and restore them. But then again we read, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord sold them into the hand of, and another enemy is named. And at the very end of that book, the author summarizes it and says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. How insightful that statement is. There was no king in Israel. He wasn't just talking there about a Saul or a David or a Solomon or a Rehoboam. He was, he was saying that the people refused to acknowledge God as king. And so everyone did what was right in his own eyes. As long as God is not our king. It doesn't matter whether we embrace communism or socialism or democracy or a republic or anarchy. We're going to have anarchy. If God is not our king, at the end of the day, we will have anarchy. 
There is no constitution strong enough to govern a godly people. There is no form of government sufficient to bring order to a people who believe that they themselves sit on the throne. But you wouldn't know it from our culture today. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is the indictment against our culture, against our day. Our generation despises the idea of having to submit to any kind of authority. We don't like being told what to do, much less that we must do it. Our generation prizes the freedom of every man to be his own king. Truth, they say, is what feels right to me. Justice depends on my viewpoint. Reality is dependent on one's perspective, upon one's story. It's all about me, my story, my reality, myself. And all of those sentiments are foreign to the church, foreign to the people of God, and foreign to human thriving. Last week we talked about the Catholic Church, the, the church universal to which all of God's people inherently belong. We saw that the church is not a loose gathering of individuals, each on their own, believing in Christ, acknowledging the truth, but rather they are inherently joined. They're joined by the Spirit who has brought them to salvation. They're joined by Christ to whom they've been united, and they're joined in the body of the local church. And that's what Article 28 turns us toward. Article 27 talked about the the concept, the universality of the church, how all believers belong to the church, Article 28 makes it very concrete that if you belong to the universal church, you must belong to the local church. You must be part, a living part of the body of Christ. And that's not just something spiritual, something academic, it's something real, something flesh and blood, something we can see. We confess the necessity of joining the true church. That's our theme. And it's an essential theme. Young people, it's an essential theme for you to reckon with. We confess the necessity of joining the true church. But to understand that, to see that, we need to remember what we saw last week and add to it a little bit about the definition of the true church. Last week we saw that it is a holy, the church is a holy congregation. It's holy, which means it's set apart from the world and set apart unto God, right? And it's a congregation. God has gathered together His people. This holy congregation is comprised of true Christian believers. Folks who understand the depth of their misery. In the midst of that misery, turn to Christ by faith and receive peace in God through faith in Christ and through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. That's the, the characteristics of the Christian church. It's a group of people that are holy, that are set apart unto God, gathered together. They're true Christian believers who seek to follow Christ as King. Now Article 28 adds that the church is an assembly of those who are saved. Now logically that follows from what we've already seen. God is the one who gathers His church. That means it is an assembly. That's what it is. And those gathered confess Christ as their Savior, which means they are saved. Now is that true? Absolutely. Is every individual head for head within the church saved? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew 13, for instance, that there, is, there are weeds among the wheat. There are, are hypocrites even among the holy ones. Paul says in Romans 9, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. 
However, as a rule, the church is an assembly of those who are saved. Because we gather together as those who've received the sign and seal of the covenant, as we saw with Isla this morning. We gather as those who confess together the truth of the Apostles' Creed, which is the truth that there is one God, there is one Savior, there is one Spirit who draws us to Him, and in Him we have life, we have peace, we have eternity. The Bible itself confirms that the church is an assembly of those who are saved. We, we heard in Isaiah 52, Break forth into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. He talks to His people there as a church, as an assembly, as those who are gathered together as one. Jerusalem. And He says there, the Lord has comforted you. He has redeemed you. You are saved. That's the nature of the church. Ephesians is, is filled with this in, in the very beginning of Ephesians. Paul addresses the church as the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. They are the saints. Literally the holy ones. The ones who have been set apart to the Lord in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2 says of the members of the church, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's what the Lord is doing with us. We're each like living stones in this holy temple that God is building up in which the Holy Spirit dwells. Ephesians 5 describes the church, saying Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, and that she might be holy and without blemish. That's what's true of the church as a whole. The Lord has gathered them together, has delivered them, and now is transforming them, so that we might be holy and perfect and without, without blemish before Him. That's the nature of the church. And how glorious that nature is. And the thing we need to remember is the church is the only body of which that is true. Now, of course, that's not something the world likes to hear, right? Especially in our pluralistic culture. We continually hear that the church is just one, one option among a number of equally valid options. You know, the, we've even heard our presidents say this. You know, Christians and Muslims and Jews and Hindus, they all serve the same God. No, they don't. They don't serve anything remotely resembling the same gods. And there can only be one true one. Which means that inherently all the others are false. So we need to discern for ourselves, determine for ourselves, which God will we serve? Will we serve the God who describes Himself here in the Bible? Or the gods who are described in the multitude of holy books of the Hindus? Or the God who is described in the Quran? Whom will we believe? Whom will we follow? Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to God except by me. Acts 4 verse 12 says, There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. There is no salvation apart from Christ. And the church is the only assembly that He gathers. That's why Article 28 says outside of it there is no salvation. It's not implying that the church itself is salvific. 
That's a Roman Catholic idea that's wrong, by the way. The church is not salvific. The church, joining the church is not what saves you. But if you are saved, if you've come to Christ, then you are going to be united to the church. And if you despise the church, if you want nothing to do with the church, if you insist on remaining aloof from the church, then you're indicating that you are not really joined to Christ. I mean, think about that frequently used analogy in Scripture that the church is the body of Christ. Take any piece of your body and, and cut it off from the body. The body will probably survive. There's a few parts it can't survive without, but most of them, it'll manage. But the part that's cut off won't. Unless it's quickly reattached, it will wither and die and decay and be no more. And so it is with one who is cut off from the church, which is the living body of Christ. This is the body to which we are joined by the Holy Spirit. And if we are content to be by ourselves, then we're not part of the church. And if we're not part of the church, then we're confessing to the world we're not part of Christ. That's why. That's why Paul makes such a big deal about the unity of the church. There's so many differences among the members of the church. Probably nowhere was that more evident than in Ephesus. Ephesus was a very cosmopolitan Roman city. It was a place where all of the, the varieties of backgrounds and cultures and worldviews in the Roman Empire were found. They all came together there. It was a very postmodern kind of city. And it would have been very easy for the church to say, you know, you go over there and worship God the way you think it's right, and we'll worship over here according to the dictates of our desires. And Paul says, no. If you are in Christ, you are part of the church, and there's only one church. There's only one assembly of those who are saved. There is only one body of which Christ is the head. And therefore, he says... Therefore, you must be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in, or of the body. You must be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, it's easy for the church to be divided. But if we understand that the church is the, the assembly of those who are saved and that there's only one, then this is an essential calling, isn't it? We can't be content to be off on our own and we can't be content to allow divisions to arise within the body any more than we can, can be content to allow divisions to happen within our own body. You have that, we call it what? A wound. And when you have a wound, you don't just go, huh, well, that's interesting, and go about your business. No, you tend to that wound. You, you do everything necessary to bring about healing. You tear apart or tear away all of the, the, the diseased flesh. You fill it with that which will promote healing. You wrap it. You, you seek to cultivate unity. And so it must be in the church. That's why it is so very essential, beloved, that we don't allow division to fester among us. That we don't allow offense to just sit there unaddressed. 
in our culture, we seem to think that's fine. We heal the wounds of one another lightly. That's why roughly 50% of all marriages that start today will end in divorce. That's why there are siblings, the, the nation over, who don't, won't talk to each other. That's why people hop from job to job to job to job and move from place to place to place. It's not just because they're upwardly mobile, it's because they're hoping they'll find more agreeable people elsewhere, not neglecting to look in the mirror and find out that they're the disagreeable one. We are called to cultivate unity in the church because, beloved, it is the only assembly of those who are saved. And if we would have the confidence of knowing that we're in Christ, then we must cultivate our unity with that body. And so our confession urges us to ensure that we're joining with the body. The second thing we see here, the duty of selflessly joining. And this is a duty that belongs to all people, whether they know Christ as their Savior without a doubt, or they're not yet sure about Christ. Whatever the condition of your soul, whatever the stage of your spiritual life, you are called to join the church. You may not be content to withdraw from it. One of Satan's chief goals is to get people to withdraw from or remain apart from the church. Why? Because a part of the body cut off withers and dies. And that's what he thrives on. And he gives us no shortage of excuses. I'm young. I'll get serious about that stuff later. Or those people are all just a bunch of hypocrites. What do I want to do with a bunch of people like that? Or, or you know, I can worship God just as well on my own out in the creation. No, you can't. And you won't. That's Satan suggesting those excuses and we must reject them. Understand that the only way a person can be content to remain by himself, the only way a person can be content to stay apart from the church is self-centered rebellion. I don't want to be accountable for what I do. I don't want to worship. I don't want to learn more about God. I don't want to join together with those people. I don't want to go through the messy work of staying united with a bunch of sinners. It always comes down to I. And to selfishness. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's why we separate from the church. We so often see it in the midst of church discipline. Well, if you're going to keep talking about my sin, if you're not going to drop this, then I'm going to leave. We have a procedure for that. It's called exclusion. It's basically a shortcut to excommunication. If you won't receive the discipline of the elders, if you won't repent from your sin and turn back to Christ, if you insist on being separate from the church, then we have no choice but to acknowledge before the church and the world what you have professed with your refusal to be part of the church, and that's that you have no part in Christ. Let that never be said of any of us. Let us never be content to withdraw from the church. Ephesians 4 verse 3, we must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And the rest of Ephesians by and large talks about what that looks like. It means, it's interesting by the way, Ephesians 4 says that at the very beginning. And then it talks about how God gives us office bearers to train us up for works of ministry. And then it immediately starts talking about communication. 
Put away falsehood. Speak the truth with one another. Be angry and do not sin and don't let the sun go down on your anger. Uh, Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. In other words, repent. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, that it may give grace to those who hear. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. And then he talks about the importance of putting off certain sins and, and walking a path of holiness. Especially in our marriages. Especially with our parents and with our children. It's all about building up unity within the body of Christ. Because we're called to cultivate that. We're called to join together with the church. Article 28 offers some wonderfully practical implications of that. Maintaining the unity of the church involves submitting to its doctrine and discipline. We're called to learn what the church believes and why. Kids, young people, that's important. We can't be united with people if we don't agree with them about the truth. That involves learning one another. Not learning about one another, learning one another, spending time with each other, seeing where our struggles are, calling one another to the struggle of putting off sin and embracing holiness. And if you stray and the elders come to you and say, you mustn't do that, or even one of your fellow members comes to you and says, you must turn back to Christ, putting aside your pride and saying, you're right, and I need your help, I need your accountability, I need you to walk alongside of me in that path. Bowing our necks under the yoke of Christ. What comes natural to us in sin is rebellion. But Jesus wants us to be disciples, which means not rebellion, but submission. Following Him in the path of submitting to the Father. Acknowledging that His yoke is easy, His burden is light, if we follow after the ways of the Lord. And meanwhile, serving to the edification of the brethren, according to the talents God has given. Romans 12 It says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Every one of us has been given gifts. And we were given gifts to serve the body of Christ. To serve within the kingdom of our God. What's that look like? Well, I mean, it it can look like serving as an elder or serving as a deacon or going to seminary to prepare to be a minister. It can look like that. It can also look like wiping tables after a fellowship meal or watching over kids in the nursery or giving a much needed hug to someone who looks like they're about to burst into tears. Let love be genuine. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Repay no one evil for evil. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That's what it looks like to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's what it looks like to join truly day after day with the church that is the body of Christ. Young people, children, that is your calling. It is your calling. Understand, kids, you're members of the church. That's why we baptized you, right? You don't join the church with profession of faith. You're already members. 
but grow into the maturity of that membership. Profess your faith publicly and live as members of the church. Don't think that worship is just for the adults. Sing the songs joyfully. Join your heart in prayer when we pray together. Take seriously the, the catechizing and the teaching that is given to you. Young adults, you too. It's not just for the kids, it's for all of us to continue learning and growing and being discipled. When you graduate high school, that doesn't mean that you graduate being discipled. It means you move into a new stage, a new degree of, of maturity. And you who are older, don't think that your duty is done because you're part of the church. No, that's part of it, but, but now have the church in your home. Now spend time with the members of the church. Now disciple those who are younger than you and make relationships with those older so that you may be discipled. And let us not forget that as long as the Lord puts us here, as long as the Lord maintains our life in this fallen world, our calling is to join with the church, which means discipling and being discipled, building up and being built up, using our gifts unto the edification of the church for the glory of Christ. What a blessing that is. It's a blessing to receive and a blessing to give. And we must never, never, never scorn it. That's the last thing we need to see here. The demand of simultaneously departing. We're to be selflessly joining the church and at the same time simultaneously departing from that which is opposed to the church. You see, Satan wants us to not be part of the church. But if he can't accomplish that, then he at least wants to distract us so that we'll be kind of, you know, useless members. That's a temptation that is particularly geared to those who live in a culture that is busy and that is independent. You know what I'm talking about. We live in a culture that is filled with things that will eat up your time. How many of you have hopped on the internet just quick a minute just to check the weather or just to check the headlines and an hour and a half later you're like, where did that time go? We're, we're, we live in a culture that is filled with distractions and also with an independent mindedness that says, you don't have a right to tell me what to do. You don't have a right to interfere in my life. You don't have a right to ask me what I'm doing, what I'm thinking, where I'm going. But if we're members of one another, well, they do have the right. In fact, we should encourage it. So we have the duty to separate, first of all, from that which is opposed to the church. That should be obvious. It would be morally contradictory to belong to the church and also to a wicked covet. Duh. But what else in our culture is morally opposed to the church and to our king? How about... Things like the National Education Association, a teacher's union that, that makes its aim the indoctrination of children in a way that is morally contradictory to everything we find in the Bible. Yeah, we should be separate from that. And that's not the only thing. There are a multitude of, of causes, a multitude of groups in our nation that are morally opposed to the church. And we need to learn to be discerning enough to ask what is the not to say that we can't belong to any other groups, right? But we need to ask, what is the basis and what is the purpose of this group? And is it compatible with being a member of Christ, a member of His church? If it's not, we must turn from it. We must reject it. We must choose Christ instead. 
That's why we, part of why we read that from Ephesians 52. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. You're the holy ones. You're the, the people that are a priestly people. As a priestly people, you must depart from that which is unholy, that which is unclean, that which would defile you. At the same time, we need to depart from that which would distract us. Make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That'll mean something different to each one of us depending on the temptations in our life. But what is it that would distract you from the church and distract you from serving the saints? Sports and activities in which you participate that demand an inordinate amount of your time? Family traditions that would, would compete for your time and loyalty on the Lord's Day? Leisure activities that would keep you from spending time with the members of the body of Christ? I am not saying family is bad. Sports are inherently evil. I'm not saying that. But we can take anything to an extreme and make it a sin, can't we? Almost anything. We can take that which is, is just good and fine. One of my sons was part of a, a shooting team uh, that was joined to a Christian school. It's great. Taught him discipline, teamwork, leadership. But then the sport began to take precedence over the serving Christ. Winning began to take precedence over witnessing. And pretty soon the team was finding excuses for shooting on the Lord's Day. Well, you know, as long as we, we get ourselves put into the into the schedule at a time when you can make church first. And suddenly the Lord's Day is getting whittled down so that we can participate in the sport. Depart. Depart from there. Touch no unclean thing. Because it's encroaching on the time that belongs to the Lord and to His people. It's encroaching on that time in which we should be discipled and discipling others. That's a hard thing and that's Knowing where we need to depart from what we need to depart is something with which we need to wrestle. We need to be praying with Psalm 139. I can find it. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I can't tell you necessarily. You need to withdraw from this. This is getting in the way of your unity with the church. But the Lord can. And we should be praying for the discernment and the understanding to know where do we need to withdraw? Am I truly uniting with the church? Am I making it a priority to live for the Lord in all of life? To live for the people of God in my life? Brothers and sisters, we belong to a body, to a kingdom. And we're called to bless that kingdom as we serve our king. If we withdraw and keep to ourselves, we'll become like a part of a human body that, that gets cut off. We'll wither, we'll die. Against that, the apostle urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. There is one body and we are part of it. 
Our spiritual lives depend on maintaining unity with the body, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That means we must understand what the true church is. We must strive with all the gifts we've been given to be united to that church, and we must simultaneously learn to depart from that which would impede our unity with the church. May the Lord make that to be our passion, not just a duty that weighs on us, but a passion that drives us as we learn to love the kingdom, the church, the bride of Christ to which we have been joined. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, you have given us such an amazing gift in making us to be part of the church which you love. 